It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. the COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, which means we're just an hour away from uh, two hours of commentary and analysis uh, on uh, local, state, national headlines from the world of politics and current events with our roundtable regulars on armchair politics, Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right this week. They'll be joined uh, by the author of Twilight of Empire, uh, Bill Weiscarver, has uh, sat at the roundtable with us before. He is a uh, former uh, counsel to the U.S. Uh, Senate Armed Services Committee and um, uh, the author of a series of books, including his most recent one, Twilight of Empire. But this first hour, we're going to start out talking about the criminal justice system with the author of a new memoir. I'm going to read a little bit from the, from the beginning of it to sort of set the stage. The first time I went to jail, I was innocent and indignant, slurred a sand nigger by the NYPD and wrongfully detained on an erroneous warrant in a city I once considered home. I became another statistic of NYC Mayor Michael Bloomberg's infamous stop and frisk policy or policing, 
later deemed unconstitutional by a U.S. District Court judge. At the time, I was a tenured associate professor of English at a state university in Connecticut, a married homeowner, and a father. I sued the city for racial discrimination and police misconduct, winning a modest settlement. The next time I was arrested, I was not so lucky, nor was I guiltless. And so begins Indian American poet, editor, translator, and professor Ravi Shankar's much-anticipated memoir, Correctional. And Ravi Shankar joins me by phone. Hi, Ravi. Welcome to the show. Hi. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, the first question has to be uh, your, your memoir, Correctional, begins with the first time I went to jail. How many times did you go to jail, Ravi? <laughs> well, uh, really, it was only uh, twice, but um, uh, the, the the second time was a 90-day pretrial detention I had to do for driving on a suspended license, which violated this probation, and it was actually stretched out over a year and a half. So, in fact, I had to go to do this uh, on five separate occasions, and so I developed a far greater intimacy with the criminal justice system than I ever anticipated. And... Now, you talk about um, the the lawsuit you filed against uh, the city of New York um, claimed uh, racism and um, what was what was the other uh, police misconduct, racial discrimination and police misconduct. There, there it is. Um, what was it about? I mean, the, the police officers in this case um, arrested you on a warrant for a 150-pound 5'10 white man, and you're 6'2", 200 pounds, and, and dark-skinned um, from uh, South India, or of South Indian descent, and you were kept for 72 hours. How is it it took so long to figure out that you weren't a white guy. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> it, would come to, it wouldn't be so hard if you took one look at me, but uh, I, I would come to find out, and I lived in Manhattan for, for many years, and I read about this time I was actually there uh, during 9-11, and this was about a decade afterwards, and uh, I uh, found out that I really had gotten stopped in uh, one of these stop-and-frisk uh, encounters, which is later uh, New York State Judge Sher Shindlin found to be unconstitutional, I, I guess over 800,000 innocent New Yorkers been stopped under this policy, but I was just on my way home from a literary event with my cousin, made a legal left turn, and um, I was stopped, and... Um, kind of uh, given a breathalyzer, which I passed, and then I all of a sudden was told that there was this warrant. I had been in Connecticut and lived in the city in uh, nearly a decade, as I said, and so um, it, once I was processed, totally confused, and I did mention Officer Murphy, who I can still recollect uh, to this very instant, uh, you know, he turned to his par partner and said, it's always a good day when you can bag a sand nigger. And uh, when I went into the precinct and I was shown this... Uh, a warrant, and I, I told the arresting officer, I said, obviously that's not me, and uh, he looked at me and said, tough shit, you can tell it to the judge. And uh, so that's kind of how I ended up uh, 
I didn't get a phone call. My family was really pretty worried about me, and I was in central booking, which I didn't even realize, under the streets of Wall Street, or one of the largest urban detention facilities. And so when you walk around, you might not realize that underneath your feet are, are all of these <laughs> men and women who are being held. And uh, the, the kind of I, I, in this chapter, I discover the, the final irony in some way was uh, after the 72 hours, uh, a public defender looked and said, obviously, this is not you. This is some kind of error. I agreed with the state prosecutor to just get it dismissed. And the judge was about to let me go. And she found out that I was a professor and asked my attorney, she said, but does this man have a public defender? She said, well, it's not him. We've, you know, reached an arrangement to dismiss it. And she said, oh, he can come back and speak to me when he's hired his own attorney. And so I couldn't even really get the matter resolved after those 72 hours. I had to come back uh, in order to do that. And so that was part of the reason why uh, we filed this suit. Uh, attorney Bruce Barron uh, filed the suit on my behalf, and what I found out was that uh, NYPD has paid out over nearly a billion dollars in police misconduct suits. Uh, and so I, I won a very modest settlement for, for that time, but um, certainly not alone in having been treated this way. I, I'm not even sure how to ask this, Ravi. Um, oh, it, it, before before I do, Ravi, I have to ask, because you have such a famous name, Ravi Shankar. <laughs> You're not related by any means uh, to the to the famous sitar player, are you? It's funny that you mentioned that there is actually a, a chapter about that as as well, and we, we do have uh, some relations in common, but it was a, a utter coincidence. My parents weren't even music fans, but in South India, the naming convention is uh, uh, such that uh, um, I was born in uh, January, which was um, the flipped season, so it was the festival of harvest there, and Ravi in Sanskrit means sun, and so that's why I was given that name, but... Of course, from being a young boy, I would often get the sitar jokes and the Beatles at Woodstock and Nora Jones. And so I heard a lot of that. <laughs> of course, he passed away, the, the maestro, a few years back. And I, um, I wrote a, a, a eulogy for him in the New York Times called Ravi Shankar and Ravi Shankar, where I talk about some of the good things that's happened uh, because of this coincidence and, and some of the negative things. Well, you must have encountered um, other forms of racism as the son of immigrants, um, especially being dark-skinned in New York City and, and other places in this country, um, but did you find it was more explicit within the police department? Yeah, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in Washington, D.C. I grew up in Northern Virginia. My, my folks still live in Manassas, which is you know, not the most cosmopolitan place known for the Battle of Bull Run and Lorena Bobbitt. Uh, and I was, you know, we were one of the only South Asian families. And so certainly growing up, I, I faced that level of, uh, you know, when my mom would pack me these delicious handmade South Asian meals, which I would die for to have now. Uh, <laughs> I was in my classmates would you know make fun of me and so i would take the kind of throwing out my lunch on before i got on the school bus because i didn't want to, to have to, to face my classmates and so i, I did deal with that uh, kind of um, discrimination certainly but that you know I, that that changed as i kind of became more comfortable in my own skin and identity but after 9 11 uh there was another kind of burst uh i was in new york at the time and i found after that there wasn't a lot of sophistication because 
uh, an Arab was the same as a Turkish person, was the same as a Sikh, was the same as someone from South India in the eyes of some people. And so uh, I did find that uh, all of a sudden I was kind of experiencing racism a little bit again, which was really unusual for me. But um, then that encounter with the NYPD was the first time that it was really kind of overt uh, in the, in my face, and I, I was shocked by it. But when I talked to some of the guys in there, they said, oh, if your skin's darker than a grocery bag uh, and you're out on the streets at the end of the month, there's a competition between the precincts to see who can get the most collars. And, you know, I thought that they were just making all of this up. But sure enough, some of these details came out in the uh, the court case that later deemed stop and frisk to be unconstitutional. Had you run into any kind of resistance at... Um at airports following 9-11? Yeah, I definitely uh, was pulled out of line on a, a few different occasions and uh, once um, interrogated for, for a little while, for about an hour. Um, you know, and I, it was also because I, as an academic, have traveled and I had been to China before and also to northern Cyprus. I taught at Eastern Mediterranean University. And, you know, Cyprus is one of these interesting places that uh, the northern part is considered occupied territory and the southern part is part of the EU. And so I, I guess that mm, triggered some kind of flags. But, uh, yeah, there was a time where, uh, and I used to sometimes grow my beard at winter. <laughs> I definitely stopped doing that, especially when I was going to get on a plane. And it's like I definitely don't want to have a beard. <laughs> Yeah, a, br- a brown skinned man with a beard. What what could possibly go <laughs> wrong, Ravi? <laughs> um, what what prompted you? I mean, you had two arrests, um, both unpleasant, and and you had you admitted the second time that you were arrested that um, you were arrested for cause. You had done something wrong and and uh we're being charged with that um but you talk about the criminal justice system and the unpleasantries but it happened to you a couple times there are people that go through this almost routinely what prompted you to write this book yeah, you know, in, in fact, um, what you mentioned, it was uh, some of those conversations uh, that, you, that you mentioned, and, uh, and I will say, I mean, this book is a lot, it's called Correctional, and so it's about me kind of taking accountability, and um, nothing that I did hurt anyone except for myself, and the 90 days that I ended up having to do um, was for a misdemeanor offense with the same amount of time that the Stanford swimmer who raped an unconscious Chanel Miller had to do. Uh, so, uh, you know, I... I the legal system is, is very different depending on who you are, where you come from. And uh, when I was in there with these men who I never... Ravi, R- Ravi oh, yeah. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to take a break here. Can you stick around? Because I want to talk about this some more. Um, my guest is uh, Ravi Shankar, uh, not the sitar guy, uh, author of Correctional a memoir. If you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 LPFM Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. Uh, We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. 
So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We're going to talk some more about criminal justice with Ravi Shankar right after this. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air 
where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We're uh, continuing our conversation this hour with the author of a new memoir called Correctional, Ravi Shankar. Ravi, welcome back. Thanks for uh, sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no worries, Tom. It's good to be here. Um, Just before the break, I was asking you, you had a couple of run-ins with the criminal justice system that were unpleasant in in different ways each time and and um i I had made the point that a lot of people routinely go through these kinds of uh brushes with the law if you will um and and i had asked you what prompted you to write this book yeah some people would try and just you know put it behind them and and you know, live it down and, and uh, walk away from it. it would, that's very funny. You sound like uh, my mom because the typical <laughs> response to anything traumatic or shameful is to repress it very, very, very deep and never mention it ever again. Um, but, you know, I mean, I felt, so, so I really wrote this reason for, wrote this book for a few reasons. And um, one was uh, these men uh, I met who I never would have encountered in my normal life. Uh, uh, it wasn't, uh, the experience wasn't like I expected. I wasn't in a cell. I was in a dorm with 60 other men, and uh, the you, you were on bunk beds, and the space that the these bunks made was your cube, and you got to kind of know your cube mates. And they shared their stories with me, uh, stories of their family, stories of their hardship and their dreams, and they made me promise uh, to, to do something with those stories. They said, you have a voice out there. We don't really have a voice. Uh, so... Uh, you know, that was one reason. Uh, the, the other reason was uh, because while I was doing this uh, 90-day pretrial detention, it just so happened to coincide with the time I was being promoted to full professor at a, a state university in, in Connecticut. And uh, for most of the, the 90 days, no one really knew. My attorney worked it out, uh, and I, it's because I had a hired attorney, although in retrospect, I kind of wished I'd done the whole 90 days at one stretch. But uh a very surreal summer. Uh, you know, I did 45 days, and then I got on a plane and flew to Hong Kong to teach my graduate students and having drinks with the ambassador to the top of the Ritz-Carlton, and <laughs> then I got on a plane to come back and do two more weeks at Hartford Correctional. So uh, it was very, very bizarre. But when my uh, promotion was be- finalized, and I, I had already been signed off on and exceeded every area of expectation, and it just needed to be rubber-stamped by the Board of Regents. And then it uh, just so happened that uh, a former Republican legislator turned Hartford current columnist got a hold of this news, and because the Board of Regents was appointed by the Democratic governor, I became very convenient to kind of score political points during an election year, and it became major news in Connecticut. It was only a misdemeanor, but poet and professor promoted while in prison. Uh, you know, your taxpayer money is going to uh, support this criminal, and th- those were the kinds of articles. And I, you know, it was a, a humiliating time because I was in the front page of the newspaper. I had camera vans outside of my house, and. 
uh, much of the stories in the reporting was uh, is sensationalistic and inaccurate. And so that's the other part of the reason why I wrote this book was to kind of tell my side of the story and correct some of the misperceptions that existed. It must have been a pretty slow news day in Connecticut. <laughs> Every day is a slow news day. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I teed you up for that one. Um, <laughs> but, but Ravi, because of your experience and the conversations you've had with other people who've had bad experiences with the criminal justice system, what kinds of things might you recommend and and how to do things differently you, you know we there's there's been a lot of um uh interest in criminal justice reform mostly of the police departments over the the killings of of young black men that we see in the headlines way too often but also about the courts themselves and i i guess what i'm wondering is how might we do it differently yeah, you know, I mean, and w- when I think about some of those statistics, I mean, in the U.S., we have about 5% of the world's population, and yet 25% of the world's prisoners are here, more than China and North Korea and Iraq combined. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I feel like we need to look and see whether this is an effective. My experience showed me there was really no rehabilitation. I'm a college professor. I wanted to teach at the school, and my requests were ignored. Uh, it, once these men were out, the support system in place, the halfway houses, the probation, was was really set up to ensure they failed, that they didn't succeed. And um, some of the men that I met, and I often think about this, this is a, a contemporary problem, because in 1980, there were maybe about 250,000 people in prison, and as of last year, there were over 2.1 million. So, in 30-odd years, in our lifetime, there's been almost a 1,000% increase in the prison population. And I think we need to ask ourselves, has it been keeping us any safer? Uh, statistically, no. Uh, the rates of recidivism, they're actually much higher in the U.S. than many other countries. Uh, and, and some of the men that I met um, might have had substance abuse issues or mental health problems, which weren't being addressed on, on the inside. And I know in Connecticut and a lot of other states that there's been far greater spending on incarceration than education. And so, you know, to me, it's not a, a Democratic or Republican issue. It, it really is a human issue to look closely at how are we spending these tax dollars? Is it effective use? And uh, the, uh, so one of the things I, I would say is kind of advocating for greater equality, because when you look at who who is arrested, uh, who the sentence times... There's a great racial disparity there. Um, but I also think that um, being more intentionally inclusive, because a lot of these men, uh, once they get out, they pay their debt to society, and yet they're not able to move forward with their life. They're not able to reintegrate. They're still shunned from their communities. They can't hold down any job. All these reentry programs, someone was just telling me, um, we'll train them to work at Dunkin' Donuts. And this guy told me, you know, I was a halfway to my accounting degree, and I'm a musician, and I'm a father, and I have a lot to offer, and now the, what I'm being told is I can only get these minimum wage positions. And so, you know, I think that the rhetoric, there's a lot of fear that, you know, these are and these people are bad, and when I got to know them, I, I realized they're just like you and I, 
uh, they may have made, made a bad decision or maybe been in a neighborhood where they're going to be over-policed. Um, but it doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't help them reintegrate into society because it's going to make us all, as a country, stronger. Do you think that it really has to do with um, judicial appointments and and diversifying the uh, ranks of various police departments and in court offices? I think that is part of it. I mean, I, I in, after this, uh, you know, I got this uh, a doctorate at the University of Sydney actually, and I was doing research in the roots of mass incarceration, and I spoke to a lot of people, including. Uh, a gentleman who was on uh, President Obama's 21st Century Policing Tax Force. And he said they made a lot of uh, really good uh, recommendations, um, all of which, when the next administration came into power, were all uh, shoved aside. Um, so, yeah, I think there needs to be legislative work, certainly greater diversity, um, but also um, looking at ways in which, because you're right, it's not just a policing issue, it's not just a legal issue, it's not just a, it's all of these elements combined. And I think, so when you want to change things institutionally, you probably have to begin uh, on the local and, and uh, state level, and then hopefully it can, I mean, it was a little disappointing to see that, uh, you know, this George Floyd uh, Act, Policing Act, uh, was shot down. Uh, in the Senate. And, you know, that's the only thing that I, I remember feeling the same way with Rodney King, remember, and Abner Luima, and um, all of these moments felt like, God, we've got to, got to change things, and yet it kind of goes back to the status quo. And so it feels like maybe now uh, uh, there can be, there's some momentum for some real change, um, and I, I really hope that happens. Uh, what was your second experience with the you know, when you had to do the serve the ninety days, uh, um, how did that all come about? Yeah, so uh, after this erroneous uh, uh, arrest by the NYPD, um, what I didn't realize, and I think this is what what is interesting to note, is that what what happens to someone who you know these innocent New Yorkers who were stopped and they, you know they didn't do anything wrong, and so they were let go. But the act of being suspected of being a criminal when you're not, uh, of, uh, uh, that has got to change your uh, relationship to other people and make you more paranoid. And I certainly, when I look back, think that in the aftermath of that, you know, I was making some pretty, pretty bad decisions. You know, I was, uh, you know, at the time probably going out and having drinks too much. I was um, acting kind of recklessly as also a moment where I was having trouble in my marriage. And so all of these things contributed to these other things that happened uh, that I describe in the book. I have a chapter called The Three Poisons, where I kind of break down this one year where these things seemed to almost out of my control. Uh, and certainly I, I was culpable in, in, in what happened, but I had this kind of issue with my credit card, and then I had a DUI. Uh, and then after having a DUI, which very stupidly was driving on a, a suspended license, uh, yeah, there is no mass transit in Connecticut, and, you know, it's difficult to get around, but that's no excuse. I, uh, you know, I, I thought a little trip to the supermarket, and some, who's going to who's gonna find out? And I, when I got, a, I got a flat tire and was waiting for a tow truck, and the state trooper who pulled up, instead of offering assistance, you know, asked for my license and found out that uh, it was suspended, and that violated the probation, which um, it was a system that I did many, many people who are convicted of crimes have these sentences of probation 
um, that set them up a lot of times for failure because um, they have to go report to their officer in the middle of the day, whether it interrupts their working schedule or, lot, or not, it doesn't matter. Um, but so as a result of that, my attorney, uh, because, you know, I had a two-year probation sentence hanging, told me that this 90-day pretrial detention um, would satisfy the state, and he was going to work it out in such a way that it didn't interfere with my teaching schedule uh, and that I would kind of uh, be able to go on with my life. And so that is how I initially had uh, to, to face the prospect of, you know, three months of my life uh, spent in, in this prison. And, and yet there are people um, who maybe uh, because of not paying child support or some very minor substance infractions end up spending years in jail. That's right. Yeah, you know, my, my three months is really just a drop in the bucket. I mean, compared to so many people. And I did meet uh, some gentlemen in there who uh, had... A cash, you know, there, there was this whole problem with cash bonds also, and they had a, a bond for some minor violation for five grand or something. And if they were able to afford three to five percent of that, they would be able to get bonded out. And yet they couldn't afford that. They had no one on the outside that was willing to pay that for them. And they were just waiting for their, they hadn't been convicted of anything. They were just waiting for a court date. And they'd been in there already for months and months. Every time they went to the court, the case was continued. And, uh, you know, the, uh, what I also realized is the kind of um, lasting generational trauma this causes, because a lot of the guys I talked to talked about their own family situation and how uh, you, they might have had uh, a parent who'd been in jail, and then all of a sudden they're a single parent, and all of a sudden they can't provide for their family. And it's this kind of self-perpetuating cycle in, in, in a lot of ways. And, and it's extremely money-driven, uh, you know, there there are all these little fees and incidentals that come up along the way that often people can't afford to pay. But twice um, since we've been talking, Ravi, you mentioned that the that that systems that part of the criminal justice system, like halfway houses and some of these these other things, probation. Um, were designed in such a way that people were being set up to fail. Do you think that's intentional, or do you think it's incompetence? <laughs> that's a, it's a great question, and I, I, you know, I'm not much of a, a, a conspiracy theorist, but you know, when you look at it historically, um, the two great moments of pr prison growth uh, in U.S. history. One came right after the Civil War in the post-Reconstructionist South. Uh, there was this kind of plantation to prison pipeline, and they had these uh, uh, in, uh, convict leasing laws where states could lease their convicts to go work on the railways and dig ditches and do the projects that no one else wanted to do. And then the other great moment uh, was right at the end of the 1970s. Uh, with President Reagan, uh, and that, of course, came right on the heels of the civil rights movement. And so there, there is a part of me that feels like there is something kind of uh, intentional happen happening, and certainly when you put into the equation privatized for-profit prisons, right? Uh, so these are literally buildings that open that need bodies in there, and, and once in there, um, there, there are men who work for 30 cents an hour, um, making products for many multinational uh, companies. And I was kind of surprised to find out Victoria's Secret for a long time. Their lingerie were made by men 
uh, housed at federal facilities, uh, which is kind of interesting to, to think about. And so <laughs> uh, there are people who are making money off of it for sure. I mean, I, I the, the phone system. I mean, you it, know, it Ravi, that's a picture that's going to stay with me for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, you know, I'm sorry. Time, Go ahead. Look at that uh, lacy bra. Just think of Bubba. But um, yeah, you know, I, I, when you have to use the commissary or use the phone, I mean, there are, as you mentioned, all of these um, these these charges, and uh, it, it feels like um, you know. I mean, I I I, I don't. I, I always like to think of things from a broader historical perspective, and. You know, uh, our Puritan ancestors, when they came over, they didn't have the system, legal system in place exactly. They believed in the sanguinary punishments, as they're called, very public uh, dunkings, moorings, uh, uh, even executions. You might remember the Scarlet Letter and Hester Prynne. And so it was very public. And, and my the favorite, Quaker. the stocks. Oh, the stocks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I lived in uh, Salem, Mass. for a while, and when you walk around there, you see some of those old uh, torture devices and old stocks in the street. But, uh, yeah, the, the Quakers, who were kind of the liberal party at the time, uh, felt like that was really kind of barbaric and medieval, and that um, jails were a more humane alternative, and that they believed in uh, silence and, and labor as the two fundamental things that could help reform someone. Um, but... Uh, I guess what, what they didn't anticipate was then it became a very convenient place to put anyone who was kind of undesirable, who was marginalized, who maybe had was homeless, uh, had substance abuse issues, because kind of out of sight, out of mind. Um, but when you look at how much it costs to house and feed these prisoners and think about if this some of that money was going into more... Uh, socially restorative programming or, uh, you know, a, a network that allowed people to develop their technical skills so they could re-enter the, the workforce, I think it would be money much better spent. You know, I think there are a lot of criminal justice uh, professionals that are frustrated by the systems they are compelled to um, administer and... and uh, perpetuate um, but yet it seems like there's almost uh, an aggressive lack of interest in changing them yeah I, you know it might be that it's the status quo and those in power I always like to think about uh, people think that it's uh, an issue on one side of the political aisle or the other and you know actually one of the uh, President Clinton was one of the, the people who did the most to make the, the prison population as high as it is today. I mean, he passed that omnibus crime bill that included things like mandatory minimums and three-strike policies. And anything that takes discretion out of the hands of the prosecutor, out of the hands of the judge, is, is not going to be a good thing because it's kind of painting everyone with the same broad brush. And so... Uh, you know, both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations, in a way, have kind of fueled this problem. And, you know, statistically, the thing is, once these people um, get out, they're very likely to reoffend. And I'm not surprised based on my experience, because I found these guys just passing the time and uh, just shooting the shit, uh, excuse my language, and um, really not 
being able to be productive or get the life skills that they might need to be able to to survive on the the outside and that to me was really heartbreaking so the title of uh, of your memoir ravi is correctional is that meant um that that over reaching phrase correctional is is that about inside and outside yeah yeah you know i you mentioned early on that i'm i am a poet and i publish a number of books of poetry and I, as a poet we're lovers of language and especially language that can convey multiple things and so yes correctional literally refers to hartford correctional center um where i spent those 90 days but it also is an attempt uh at me to reckon with uh, my own demons and make amends. Um, I have these letters to some of the people in my life that might have been affected by my actions. Uh, it's also correctional to the narrative that was put out by the mass media, even when uh, some reporters spent time with me and uh, got to see some of my professional accomplishments and none of that stuff ever made it into any of these articles. Uh, and I, I think lastly, you're, you're right, the more holistic aspect of the title is what I hope... Uh, is, can be a correctional to the entire um, situation um, that we find ourselves in where 3% of the American population is in, incarcerated or on parole or on probation. And we, we talk about the, the 1%. I like to talk about those as the 3 percenters in, in some way. And so I really hope this book, which, uh, you know, I hope it's recognized for its verbal dexterity and the story that I tell, but that it's not just a, a static literary artifact, but it's something that compels us to want to get involved, to make some kind of change, to learn more, certainly. And so in that way, I hope it can be a correctional for all of us. Ravi, now that you've got this uh, book out, are you more or less inclined to look over your shoulder? <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not just my, my mother wasn't too happy with it, and my attorney also was like, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> You better keep your nose clean. So, uh, yes, I, uh, um, you know, the great thing about this, I, and the book is uh, available uh, on Kindle now and uh, for pre-order. should have been out by now, but the supply chain has got it a little crimped, but hopefully we'll be here by the end of the year. But uh, it's starting a, some really great conversations, which I'm happy to see. And I think maybe in part because my story is a little unique because I'm both someone who's benefited enormously from systems of privilege. You know, I w w was educated at Ivy League school, and my parents were middle class, um, and yet I also have um, experienced discrimination um, that people who have skin color similar to me have experienced, and so I'm kind of able to tell this story from both vantage points, I think. Um, well, Ravi, thank you for sharing at least some parts of your story with me and the listeners this morning. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about more about you more about your work past present and future ravi do you have a website uh yes you can find out more about me at poet ravi shankar.com um i'm teaching at uh, tufts university now and uh i'm on the socials at Impurpler and also at correctional memoir and if you uh correctional is published by university of wisconsin press and uh, it is available now on uh, Amazon for uh, ebook and pre-order. Well, Ravi, uh, thanks again. Um, what's up next for you? Uh, you have another book in the works? 
Uh, you, you know, uh, I actually know whatever it is that I write is going to be as far uh, from the private confessional self as possible. You know, someone asked me that recently, and I said, eh, maybe it's going to be some kind of, you know, f- uh, speculative, fabulous, erotic noir or something. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but definitely adult, uh, I'm kind of tired of um, examining myself. And, you know, I, I do have a a book of poems that I'm working on, and I'm doing some essays and other things, but as far as a large creative pro- project, I, I think I'm going to, yeah, maybe, maybe science fiction or something. That, that sounds about as far from myself as I can get. Well, Ravi, uh, thanks again, and keep up the good work. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Take Stay care. safe. More of the Tom Sumner program right after this. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. 
Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Summer Program.com. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. This is the woods. My name is Wednesday. I work out a homicide. Monday, February the 2nd, 10.22 a.m. Bumped into chicken licking. Told me the sky was falling. I booked around the 6.14, turned her over to the psychiatrist. Then a call came in at a 5.03. When I was on my way to the 5.03, a 6.18 came in. I added up the 6.14, the 5.03, and the 6.18. Got 1,735. I handed in my paper to the chief. He corrected it. Gave me 100%. Patted me on the head. Told me I was a good cop. 11.45 a.m. it happened. I saw a little girl in a blue hood carrying a basket. I stopped to question her. Pardon me, ma'am. Could I talk to you for just a minute, ma'am? What about? Nothing much, ma'am. Just want to ask you a few questions, ma'am. What's your name? Little Blue Riding Hood. Where are you going, ma'am? Grandma's house. Yes, ma'am. What do you got in the basket? What are you trying to say? I got something in the basket I shouldn't have? No, ma'am. I didn't say that. Then why are you asking me all these questions for? Just routine, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. May I have a look in that basket, ma'am? Be my guest. Let's see. Sawed-off shotgun. Knife, bludgeon, box of dum-dum shells. Nothing suspicious here. All right, ma'am, we may want to talk to you later, so don't leave the woods. She skipped on down the path, but she didn't know I'd seen the concealed compartment in the basket. In it, what I'd suspected all along. Goodies. My job, get to Grandma's before she did. I took a shortcut through the strawberry patch. It was sort of a strawberry shortcut. I walked up to the cottage, rang the bell. Come in, dear. Okay, Grandma, it's a raid. A raid? Why, I'm just a peace-loving old lady. You've got the wrong Grandma. Yes, ma'am. We just want to get the facts. Where'd you get that bump on your head? The sky fell on me this morning. I made a note to book her on the 614 and turned her over to the psychiatrist. I tied her up, put her in the closet, then I put on the Grandma suit and got into bed. Come in, ma'am. Hello, Grandma. I got the loot. What are you doing in bed? I'm feeling poorly. But, Grandma, what big ears you have? All the better to get the facts. I just want to get the facts, ma'am. But, Grandma, what a big subpoena you have in your pocket. All the better to serve you with. But, Grandma, what a big 38 police special you have pointed at me. All the better to take you in. You're under arrest. You and your Grandma are operating a goodies ring. A cop? I 
should have known. Known what, ma'am? You look nothing like my grandma. You forgot about the mustache. But I don't have a mustache. I know, but grandma does. Well, I see you broke the goodies ring. How'd you get a lead on her, Joe? I just played a hunch, Frank. It was just a hunch. I played my luck. Sometimes a hunch pays off, sometimes it doesn't. I was just lucky. I just played a hunch, Frank. What you're trying to say, Joe, is you just played a hunch. A lucky guess. Sometimes a hunch pays off, sometimes it doesn't. You just played a hunch. Is that what you're trying to tell me, Joe? Yeah. I just played a hunch. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. One thing about this world you can't depend on anything. The leaders that we follow, they can't even write their name But here we are in America, ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on Our children going hungry, teens are turning to crime And politicians know it's true, but they ain't got no time But here we are in America, nothing seems to change, it just goes on and on
The Tom Sumner Program.com. Wash my hands. I don't touch my face. I stay at home. Shelter in place. Social distance. Don't go to work. I wear a mask and gloves. I stay away from church. I avoid old folks. And should I sneeze, I do it in my elbow. I regained consciousness. You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs> 